Audio for the Cover Crew Podcast is hosted by Cyber Ears. If you have a need to host audio on the internet, whether it be for your own podcast or for your um, church or other place of worship or your business or whatever you have a need to host audio on the internet for, we recommend that you check out Cyber Ears while you will get your audio on your terms. adventure into the world of retro computing news and information featuring the tandy color computer hey you got your coco 3 yet coco all right coco cruisers welcome back to episode 79 of the coco crew podcast Woo! let's see i'm john linville I'm here, uh, let's see, I've got uh, Neil Blanchard on the line. Hello, Neil. Hello, everyone. And we've got Mike Rowan. Hello, Mike. Coco Christmas, everyone. <laughs> and, of course, we got Mr. Boise Pete. Hello, Boise. Coco forever. <laughs> very good, very good. And uh, as you say, Merry Christmas to one and all. Happy holidays. Uh, if you are uh, not of that denomination, whatever. Certainly welcome. As long as you have uh, cocoa in your heart, you're welcome here, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Close to the end of uh, 2021, soon will be 2022. Cocoa Fest 2022 should be coming up in May of 2022. So we're calling it four months here. It's close enough. Get to get ready. I think the hotel block is open if you want to make your reservation. Let's see. Of course, Tandy Assembly, that'll leave it approximately nine months away. You should go ahead and try to make your reservation there if history is any indicator. Both should be on your calendars uh, because I'm sure both of them will have uh, lots of Coco content. Who's been working on something cool lately? I uh, finally had production up and running on um, the brand new game that I'm producing with the GMC uh, sound card. Awesome. Which is called uh, Blockdown. It's a Tetris clone. So uh, by the time you hear this podcast, everyone, uh, production will be ready and the game will be for sale. Awesome. Awesome. Very good. Just in time <laughs> for the holidays. And that, that has a suitable soundtrack along with the classic Tetris-like gameplay? It does. Yeah, it sounds really <laughs> nice. Yeah, and that's from uh, Kieran Anscombe as the programmer, right? That's correct. Very good. Very good. A right good old chap, that. <laughs> he did the artwork, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. That's, that's cool. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, anyone else? Mike, what you been up to? Unfortunately, nothing Coco related. I've just been uh, <laughs> super, super busy with Log4J2. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I've, I've kind of heard about that, but kind of turned my attention elsewhere. So <laughs> I know it's a, a headache, but I don't know that much about it. So. <laughs> Hopefully uh, that'll be straightened out before long here. Boise, have you been up to anything cool recently? I have, but uh, I will talk about it later on in the show as part of the news. Uh, awesome. Mystery. We love it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, myself, um, 
not a lot. A little poking around the the stash here and there, but not not for any particular purpose. Although I did uh, put together a couple of um, GMC developer kits for some interested parties, so, so somebody should be enjoying the smell of solder somewhere, and maybe it'll turn into the uh, the, <laughs> the enjoyment of hearing some music eventually. But uh, other than that, I'm uh, hoping to have a little extended bit of time off around uh, around Christmas and New Year's, and maybe I'll get to some projects that I've got in mind. But you know, uh, I'll I'll just keep those to myself until there's actually something to talk about. <laughs> what about uh, acquisitions? Anybody bought anything cool recently? I did buy a big stash of uh, of uh, diskettes. The color computer stuff, a lot with a cover three and then a whole bunch of diskettes. Many of them have, have original software and such on them, or at least they, they have the original labels on them. <laughs> I haven't had a chance to dig through them much. Yeah, cool. There were some interesting looking um, possibilities in there. I think one of them actually has something to do with RGB DOS, a few other nice, you know, like game titles and a few like rainbow on disk things, that sort of thing. So, hopefully there'll be some good stuff in there that's survived. We'll see. Maybe that's good enough for an introduction. So, why don't we take a little break, and then we'll be back with some announcements. Ring in the holidays. Ring out the year. With the MC-10. Love and good cheer. Take home an MC-10 for the holidays. MC-10 for the holidays. What's a celebration without the MC-10 microcolor computer to lend sparkle and elegance and the Jim Gary collection of games to keep things bubbling along? Greet the season and your friends. MC-10, for the holidays and all year long. Okay, Coco Maniacs, welcome back for some announcements. You are listening to the Coco Crew Podcast. We have a Twitter account. This is available with a Twitter handle of at... Coco Crew Podcast, that's at sign C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. If you'd like to send tweets, uh, feel free to tweet at us. We may tweet back. We're also available with a group uh, on Facebook. And then, of course, it's called The Coco Crew Podcast. That's four several words. So join the group. Maybe get a little um, inside knowledge or... Uh, Maybe a little early news or announcements or just whatever we think is cool that day. Maybe a picture of me in a hat or something like that. <laughs> do do come and join us on Facebook. See, we are a podcast, so we do have an RSS feed available at cococrew.org. That's probably the preferred way for you to consume the podcast, or what we prefer at least. But if you prefer, uh, we are available through Apple Podcasts and through Google Play. And if you prefer to stream rather than download your podcast, we are available on Spotify, on Stitcher, and on TuneIn. And if you prefer to uh, exercise uh, your eyes while listening to the podcast, we do take the podcast and do a little conversion to a, a video version, but mostly just uh, still pictures and uh, in a waveform of our delicious voices. <laughs> we do make that available on YouTube with a link in the show notes. One advantage to consuming the podcast on YouTube uh, is that uh, the uh, YouTube does a pretty good job with subtitles. And so if you have um, either perhaps a hearing disability or perhaps English is not your first language and um, you uh, can benefit from having uh, the text as a backup while listening or 
maybe um, maybe we just talk funny and <laughs> it's easier for you to uh, to consume with your eyes you may check out you might want to check out the YouTube version looks like the viewership on the YouTube version is up a little bit but it still pales in comparison to the downloads uh, but still it's there and um, I think it's kind of fun to watch the, the bouncing voices <laughs> we are a member of the throwback network uh, the Throwback Network is a collection of retro-themed podcasts, most of which are about 80s era of computing technology or video games. Anyway, if you're caught up on the Kogaguru podcast and looking for something else to listen to, then we recommend that you check out the Throwback Network. We are also listed on the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. These are all 80s era gaming or computing-related uh, podcasts. Once again, if you're caught up on the Cocoa Crew podcast looking for something else to occupy your listening time, then we recommend that you check out the Game by Game podcast information hub. If you want to reach out to the host of the Cocoa Crew podcast via email, we have a few addresses set up. The first three will reach all of the hosts. We have show, S-H-O-W, at cococrew.org. That's at C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W dot O-R-G. We also have podcast, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at org, and feedback, F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K, at org. If you have a reason to reach out to just one of us, then we each have individual addresses. Uh, so I'm John, J-O-H-N, at org. Neil is Neil, N-E-I-L, at org. Mike is Mike, M-I-K-E, at org. And Boise is Boise, B-O-I-S-Y, at org. All right, those are our standard announcements. Let's see, at this point, we'd like to give a heads up to some coming events in real life that we think may be of interest to you. Coming up April 29th through May 1st, 2022, BCF is Vintage Computing Foundation East. This will be held in uh, Wall, New Jersey, at the InfoAge Science Center. This is a cool event. Lots of history there. There's an old Marconi radio site, an old army base. And along with the vintage computers, uh, have some uh, vintage facilities <laughs> check out. So if uh, you're up in the um, the northeast part of the United States, sort of the New York area, it's uh, actually, as I said, in Wall, New Jersey, late April, early May. We recommend that you check out VCF East, a cool event. Uh, April 29th through May 1st, that's right. Uh, Midwest Gaming Classic. Uh, this will be held at the Wisconsin Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Midwest Gaming Classic is a trade show featuring 150,000 plus square feet of retro and modern home video game consoles, pinball machines, arcade video games, tabletop RPGs, computers, tabletop board games, crane games, collectible card games, air hockey, and that's just the start. <laughs> So we've heard uh, good things about this event uh, from Ron Klein. I've never been to it myself, but it sure looks like a lot of fun. So if you are in the Midwest part of the United States uh, and the uh, the end of April, early May, uh, then we recommend that you make your way to Milwaukee for the uh, Midwest Gaming Classic. That brings us to May 14th and 15th of 2022. That'll be the last Chicago Coca Fest. This, uh, of course, originally was the big event that brought us all together, a big event in the cocoa community. Glenside continues to sponsor this. They just had one in November, but the plan still is to have one in May, returning us closer to the traditional schedule. 
I think we all probably plan to be there as long as the, um, you know, the government doesn't lose its mind and forbid all travel or whatever else. <laughs> Should be a big event. They had a pretty successful event back in November. Hopefully that streak will continue for them. And that is uh, May 14th or 15th, 2022 at uh, the Holiday Inn Elk Grove Village in, uh, in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. All right, let's see. Moving on, August 6th and 7th of 2022, we have now VCF West, or Vintage Computer Festival West 2022. It, uh, I assume it's going to be still at the Computer History Museum, Mountain View, California. You'll find demos of 60s mini computers, 70s homebrew systems, 80s 8-bitters, and a few oddities. So if you're on the West Coast of the United States looking for some 8-bit action, Come next August, then check out VCF West 2022. Hopefully you will find what you're looking for. <laughs> if you listen to this podcast, though, the only one we know that you'll find what you're looking for is coming up September 30th through October 2nd in Springfield, Ohio. We're, of course, talking about Handy Assembly, which we believe is the premiere of Tandy-related event in all of retro computing these days. <laughs> so uh, make your plans now. The, um, the, the, the event is uh, contends with another event, it looks like. can be a little... Uh, 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 the hotel does fill up. So make your plans early. Come and join us. I'm sure you'll have a good time. I know we did this past year and uh, the years before. Proceeding that. Again, Tandy Assembly, September 30th through October 2nd, 2022, in Springfield, Ohio. Should be a great time. <laughs> that brings us to the end of our announcements. So when we take another little break, we'll be back with some news. Know what you're getting me for Christmas? Yep. Is it fast? Yep. Bucket seats? No seats. Do you stand up in it? Nobody ever has. Give me a hint. When you press its buttons, good things happen. You got me a vending machine. It's a lot of fun for everybody, and it's easy to set up. It's fast. You press buttons. It's fun for everyone. You didn't. It's a go-go. The Tandy Color Computer 3. Available exclusively at Radio Shack, America's technology store. Right, Coca Cruisers, welcome back. And now it's time for the news. Okay, we're starting off this month with a link from Grant Lady. It's the hotel group rates are now available for the 2022 Coco Fest, as we mentioned earlier. Follow this link and uh, book yourself a hotel. I think the room rate's $99 this year. Uh, that's at the Holiday Inn in Elk Grove, Illinois. So Definitely check that out. Book early. Yeah. Our next one is a cool one here from Brendan Donahue. Something I've been working on over the past few weeks to make hardware experimenting on the internals of the MC10 a bit more feasible. And um, we've, uh, I recently, I forget what show it was, saw, uh, well, it was a Tandy Assembly, of course. It was a Tandy Assembly. Mm -hmm. saw the kind of precursor of this where, uh, and and I know he's posted about it before, where he kind of created these extender pegs for the MC10 case, so it had room enough, you know, to raise the top, had room enough to, uh, you know, put more things in, uh, specifically the the Coco VGA, and 
he's gone further and made a complete adapter for the bottom that goes between the sandwiches between the perfectly between the bottom and the top of the MC10 to give it like a, an inch of space for uh, expansion. So it raises the keyboard up a little bit, but uh, yeah, that's awesome design, awesome work, Brendan. That's uh, that's a definite boon to the MC10 community. Yeah, it's pretty cool, and like I said, it, it doesn't change much, but uh, it makes it possible to stuff a little extra hardware in there. And uh, you know, it's a uh, it's still pretty good looking uh, uh, assembly. Yeah, gives it gives us some polish. That's very cool. All right, our next link is from Sean Clayton. This is a dump of the later version of the audio spectrum analyzer cartridge. So apparently there were multiple versions of the uh, the audio spectrum analyzer cartridge, and uh, he has captured the uh, ROM from the, I guess that's the last edition that was released, and mm -hmm. has made it available if uh, anybody wants that, if you need it for some yeah. reason, or, or want to load it from a disk mm -hmm. image or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a recent discovery that this other, that Tandy had somehow squeezed out this updated version without much fanfare. Uh, the original audio spectrum analyzer software uses, you know, one of the forbidden, shall we say, <laughs> cinegraphics modes that only exists on the Coco 1 and 2, but not on the Coco 3. And so this one appears to have had the graphics changed to use um, another mode that, uh, uh, allows it to work on the Coco 3, and so there's much clamoring to, to be had for that. And wow. uh, somebody finally dumped that version. So I see. I was not aware of that. Cool. All right. Uh, our next link is from Kieran Anscombe. You can now pick MC10 from the machine dropdown in XROAR Online. <laughs> so uh, he's recently added support for the MC10 in XROAR, and now. It's available from the machine dropdown when you use it online. So uh, yeah, that's very cool. Uh, Kieran has done a lot of work and continues to do bug fixes and uh, further the support for the MC10 in XROAR. That's, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, very cool. That's a quality emulator with a lot of conscientious attention to detail. Hopefully he will continue that level of, of detail uh, with the MC-10 and the Coco 3, which is something he's also working on now. Definitely a, a contribution to the community, and and, and then he's got it com, you know, compiling into JavaScript or whatever this is that allows it to run online, so you can actually enjoy it in your browser. So very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks, Karen. Uh, this fun is from someone who calls themselves Computer Music. <laughs> And it's uh, musicradar.com. Don't know a lot about the site, but seemed like a cool little breakdown of some fundamentals of music theory that goes beyond a circle on this note as a G. <laughs> um, and uh, goes a little farther to uh, not only describe some notes, but also the sounds and names of certain kind of intervals and uh, talks a little bit about scales or whatever even goes into chords. And it's not real in-depth. I give you at least some idea of what people are talking about if you run across these terms or if you're like me and you kind of like to watch some of these kind of videos uh, on YouTube or whatever. It might give you some idea at least what to research for, <laughs> for understanding. It's just fun for me, but it's worth knowing a little bit about this stuff. Why not check this one out? 
This is a, a paper, I guess, from someone, Michael Navarrete, uh, who is from the Department of Economics at the University of Maryland. From the abstract here, sounds like he may be a little bit more of a Keynesian econ economist. Analyzes uh, this topic of, um, we mentioned this earlier, maybe a year ago or so, um, that there were some problems with uh, COVID-related changes to um, unemployment and such in their state IT systems because those the, the, they were running pro or software that was written in COBOL. <laughs> Which you know we touch on COBOL here some because just because COBOL by its very nature kind of implies a retro computing environment of sorts. <laughs> anyway, the topic here seems to indicate that not being able to find these changes or figure out how to get these changes done resulted in delays in people getting this economic relief money related to COVID. And so it kind of extrapolates from there that um, this held back some of our economic uh, growth over the past year or whatever. It says that a real GDP declined by $181 billion in 2012 dollars. Anyway, not sure I buy it. I'm also not an economist. <laughs> you know, I do have two hands because that's the old joke about if you're a politician relying on an economist, you always want one that's you know, got, only got one arm. Because uh, you ask an economist a question, and he'll always say, well, on the one hand, this, but on the other hand, that, and give you the exact opposite answer. <laughs> 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 well, I don't know if this guy's got one hand or, or two hands, but whether or not you agree with him or agree with me on economics, maybe it's worth at least looking at what, what the guy has to say. So, it, you know, is it related to the cocoa? No, hardly at all, if, if at all. But... It is sort of a retrocomputing topic, and so here it is. <laughs> Moving along, makeuseof.com. Don't know a lot about that website or web magazine or whatever. <laughs> but the author is uh, Stefan Ionesco. Title of the article, How Do Various Arduino Sensors Work? Arduino, of course, is a modern but small computing platform a lot of people have experimented with. You can do a lot of kind of physical computing projects, like if you want to make lights flash or, you know, make something jump out at you as part of a Halloween <laughs> setup or something. But anyway, there's a lot of hardware available that's marketed to people who use Arduino, including a whole lot of different sensors. And so you can tell about the world around you, heat, humidity, you can detect motion, detect um, the lights, all that sort of stuff. Most of that is available in 5-volt forms, and so this is where it connects into the Coco. You could hook your Coco up to Arduino sensors in many cases with limited or, or perhaps hardly any um, adaptive circuitry and uh, be able to do physical computing projects with your Coco. So <laughs> check it out. Maybe you'll learn something new. It'd be cool. Very cool. All right. We have a YouTube video from um, Cadro Retro Innovations. I don't know who that is. People make their YouTube channels or whatever, and they, they create these uh, <laughs> alternate personalities or whatever. Cadro, uh, if you're a listener, I'd love to hear from you, but don't know uh, anything else about you. But I did watch the video, and it's kind of cool. Recently, there was a video that kind of got uh, – 
discussion in the community, especially in the dragon world, that basically looked at the Coco versus dragon, compared them, sort of came to the conclusion that the dragon was a clone of the Coco, at least a little bit. <laughs> um, and so this one sort of takes on that notion, looks at the, the dragon and the Coco. It goes a little bit farther back, looking at uh, sort of the video text and AgVision terminals and, and the even touches a little bit on green thumbs, but looks at it again, kind of covers some of the same territory, you know, that both the dragon and the cocoa were built based on uh, the um, reference circuit in the in the um, data sheet for the uh, 6883, and comes uh, comes down to uh, a little more generous to the dragon folks, uh, saying that well, it's not entirely, not not an absolute clone. The reason that there's similarities is obviously because, you know, you start with the same chipset and hook them up the same way, you're going to have some similarities. I don't know. I suppose you could take either side, but at least there are two sides. So here's the other one. <laughs> so check it out, see what you think. Yeah, exactly. This is the other hand of the economist on uh, <laughs> whether or not the dragon is a clone of the cocoa, but worth looking at. And then it's pretty well well made, I think. So. Yeah, good video. Good video. The next news item is Retro Challenge 2021 Starlanes by our friend of the show, Mr. Jim Geary. This is a uh, this is a website that Jim has put on Blogspot.com. It's a, a set of looks like programs. Well, there's Starlanes, Star Traders. This is of course Jim's famous basic on the MC10 games. Looks like he's uh, putting in for the Retro Challenge 2021 to bring these games over, and he has a couple of YouTube videos that show his uh, his progress on that. Always cool stuff from Jim. Yes, very nice. The work continues. <laughs> the next news item is initial dump of technical information for Chaos RAR, rendering subsystem only by Mr. Chet Simpson. So this is a... API reference or a reference of the information about how the Chaos Engine works. Lots of detail here on the various structures and the data structures that are required to use the Chaos Engine. Looks like this would be of interest to gamers and uh, looks like a lot of information that Chet's put together. Definitely a very capable engine. You may have to be Chet in order to use it. <laughs> um, a lot of uh, a lot of brain work to go into doing some of that stuff. You can do some amazing stuff with the Chaos Engine. I've seen some of his other videos. Things there's things that I either have no idea how he's doing, or can't believe that he's able to do it and to get enough brute force to take it to do it. Or imagine that maybe I sort of think I kind of have an idea of what tricks might be involved, but not well enough to actually de describe it. So <laughs> definitely some cool stuff going on there. And it's, uh, it's nice that uh, Chet's making that available for anyone that wants to use it. And providing cool. documentation. So how amazingly uh, thought out it is. Yeah, it's, uh, if you've seen the demos online, this stuff that he does is quite impressive. Yeah, so it's amazing. Great work, Chet. Very cool. Thanks, Chet. This year, give your gifts that extra touch with Radio Shack batteries. They make holiday fun last longer than other batteries. Oh, you think of everything, even Radio Shack batteries. 
What a nice touch. What? Wow, it's cool. Try it out. I put in Radio Shack batteries. Radio Shack batteries. The extra touch that makes holiday fun last longer. Radio Shack makes Christmas dreams come true. This mini phone you gave me will sure be great for the den. Super small size, push button dial with a memory button that automatically redials busy numbers. An extra long 16 foot cord. And it hangs up when you put it down on any flat surface. Besides, we save even more when we own our own phone instead of renting it. And it's on sale for $39.88. Honey, I should have gotten you one for the kitchen. Well, you did. Built and sold only by Radio Shack, your Christmas electronics store. All right, the next news item is version 2 of my ROM loading running utilities, uh, romutils.bin, adds these functions to basic by Mr. Barry Nelson. I don't know exactly what the, this is, but it looks like he's doing some uh, loading of machine language or ROM. I'm not exactly sure, John. Yeah, it, uh, I think he's got some implementation of, I think the way he's put them together is basically as USR functions. So you'd be calling them from basic um, with like a user one, user two, that oh, kind yeah. of stuff. Yep. Yep. But it's related to loading and booting ROM images like for, you know, like from car cartridges or whatever. Definitely something that people want to do and um, the nice um, packaging of, of that, the required skills <laughs> to make that happen. So very cool. Yeah, it is. Just to load up ROMs from uh, disk images. Yep, very nice. You know, when I was uh, growing up reading Learning Basic, reading that manual, for some reason I always saw the user function USR as USSR, but uh, that was <laughs> Didn't want to use it then, right? Cold War <laughs> exactly. reference, huh? <laughs> exactly, yeah. All right, the next news item is Super PAC. That's spelled S-O-O-P-E-R. And we thought Job of the Hut was a glutton by Richard Kelly. <laughs> This appears to be a uh, a game that Richard has. I don't know if Richard uploaded it or just pointing it out on Color Computer Archive, but it seems to be somewhat related to uh, or similar to Pac-Man, but has a different mm -hmm. uh, theme to it, shall we say. Richard pops up once in a while with uh, various game uploads, and I think he writes them, but it's always kind of clever and, and seems to be fairly well done. So it's uh, it's nice that he's making that contribution for people that are uh, interested in playing this game. It's very cool. Yeah, very nice. Up next, we've got an another one here from a friend of the show, Jim Gary. The game he's converted called uh, Mystery Mania by David Lathauser. Uh, it was published in Compute Magazine in December 1987. Now, this looks like a really cool one for the... Uh, well, for the MC-10 now that he's converted, uh, it creates logic puzzles with a murder mystery theme to them. <laughs> Apparently here in the description, there's uh, 32,000 variations with five levels to play, five levels of play to choose from. Yeah, it looks like a, some nice work. He's added a title screen, so a little extra graphics here for you. Yeah, pretty cool graphics. It's uh, well done. Yeah. All right, uh, next one here is from uh, Paul Piscarelli. Here is the Prince of Persia demo I put together as part of my CocoFest presentation. So this is what he uh, demonstrated at CocoFest uh, this past year. It's not complete. It's a demo of uh, the game Prince of Persia, and it's based on the uh, DOS VGA version, uh, the mm -hmm. PC version, if anybody's seen it. So the graphics look really nice. And basically he was doing this as, as to use the, the tools he's created. It was, I guess he's developed some game tools to make it easier. That's, yeah, it's a uh, cool demo for sure. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. looks, looks really nice. Same kind of fluid uh, motion of the characters and stuff in it. Yeah, yeah. It's even cool to see it go to the that that font with the text. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's all, all authentic. It'd be, it'd be cool if this can be uh, completed. That's a great game. But either way, that's uh, cool to see. Uh, yeah, good work, Paul. The next news article is from Guillaume Major. SDCX 1.30 is now available. And uh, he's added a command to boot any of the eight flashbanks on the Coco SDC. For those not familiar, the SDCX is a menu-based program for the Coco SDC. So with this extra feature, you can now boot um, stuff you flash into the banks. That, that, that's a very handy feature. That's a, that's great work. Yeah, very yeah, cool. Makes nice good use of the hardware. Yeah, you could flash even uh, a drive wire in there. Right, yeah. I mean, that's what yeah, I use it for. It's different DOSes, so. Yeah. Yeah, that, that that's awesome. All right, uh, my next news article here in this section is from Tim Lindner. Uh, he's he's actually been uh, fairly busy lately, it seems. And he has. Is, uh, titled Salient Assembly Episode 1. So this is a new entry in his blog on his website. His website is good. There's a lot of uh, useful information on it. And this one here is talking about uh, subroutines uh, in 6809 assembly language. This is awesome. I, well done, Tim. Um, <laughs> having made a few videos myself, using animation and everything really helps. Very well done. I'm I'm excited. I hope you continue with this uh, series. Although, you know, it could be a 500 part series, but that's okay. We'll watch them all. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. And it's like the 6809 cookbook or whatever. So we got some cool stuff in there. So. Yeah. The next news item is Dragon 3264. Use modern power supply replacement and tidy up by Retro Romer at YouTube. This is a YouTube video. I see that there is a new power supply. Wow, this is interesting. So it looks like it's a replacement for the old power supply. It's a little bit shorter. It's a green board as opposed to the old power supply's brown board. I don't know what the source of this is, but it looks like it's made specifically for the Dragon. And I guess it's good for Dragon folks who want to replace older power supplies. Right, John? That's that's the way I read it. Um, you know, like I said, I'm not sure if there's uh, particular problems with the stock power supplies, or if it's just that they get old and things break. And uh, <laughs> it's uh, maybe it's just a fun project. I don't know, but <laughs> it, uh, it seemed like a worthwhile thing. So, um, so we covered it here. Yeah, zooming in on it, I see it's uh, Dragon SM something, and it's built by Dragon Plus Electronics. Date 2021, September 5. So it looks like it's a, a modern replacement built by someone. Very nice. Very good stuff. I think that's John Woodworth is uh, okay. the, the, the person, the same person who makes the Super Sprite board, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think so, okay. yes. Cool. The next news item is Be Careful When Cleaning the Heads of Your Drives by Mr. Joe Travis. It's the Vintage Computers Group on Facebook. The picture is pretty much the whole story. <laughs> um, shows a, f- a five and a quarter inch floppy, and you can see the window where the media is exposed, and it has two very clear grooves <laughs> uh, dug into the floppy. Uh, the text says, 
uh, was servicing several five and a quarter inch floppy drives a couple of weeks ago and encountered one that had an unusually loud squeal. Someone had apparently used a cotton swab to clean the heads. This drive has a, quote, a unique design, spring loading for the head, which the cotton swab had caught the corner of and twisted it just enough to carve a groove in the disc. So then it says in all caps, be careful when cleaning the heads on your drives. <laughs> so, yeah, make sure you're not making mechanical modifications to your uh, drive mechanism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you think you're just cleaning it, so because it could uh, it could do be, be doing a woodworking. It's a <laughs> it's a drive, not a lathe. So um. <laughs> this is why I'm glad we have modern non-moving parts alternatives for storage. Yeah, sure, definitely. The next news item is I have successfully imaged the disk for a Labyrinth of Chaos by Michael Setzer. Uh, this is by Robert Rivard on the TRS-80 Coco Facebook group. I am not familiar with the game Labyrinth of Chaos, but it must be an older game, I'm assuming, based on the description. And he has finally imaged it, I'm assuming, off a floppy drive. Yeah, and so he's posted the disk image there, so if you want to try it yourself. The next news item. Nice little basic program that does palette animation. Craig Stewart, well done, mate. I like it by... Mr. Brian Palmer, this is a Facebook group post. Uh, it's a disk image that Brian apparently has uploaded, a uh, basic program that does palette animation. And really no description inside of the note other than that and a few comments. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know much about it either, but uh, <laughs> it's something somebody posted and, um, you know, download it and check it out and uh, entertain yourself with it. That's it, yeah. <laughs> All right, we've got another one from Mr. Jim Gary. Text adventure written in basic. I'll let you pronounce this uh, in French, uh, Boise. I know it translates to ghost ship. Voiceau fantôme. Oui. <laughs> Actually, uh, yeah, we don't say in, in French down here, we call a, a ghost a revenant. It's a different way of saying it. They must have called it, called it a fantôme up there. Or phantom is very, it sounds like it's cognate to the English word of phantom. Sure. So that was, uh, Jim translated that from French himself uh, for this text adventure. So now it's available uh, for us dumb English-speaking people. <laughs> so, <laughs> so looks like a cool game, looks like a cool adventure game. Thanks for that, Jim. Uh, do you have to be dumb to play, or is it help if you're smart? <laughs> Depends on who you're asking. <laughs> All right, we've got one from Nick Brizovac. After a couple of tries, I finally have a QWERTY keyboard working on my Coco. The fit and finish looks pretty good. Uh, whether you appreciate the keys you know, or want to type on them is probably another issue, but <laughs> in terms of making what he's produced look good, I'd say he's done a pretty good job. He's got a couple of extra ports hanging off the side. That, uh, I'm not really sure what they're for to kind of, let's see, once his audio, once his composite, once his S-video. So he's got video ports along the side. Ah. Um, and uh, like I said, not the most look comfortable looking uh, typing arrangement. Um, but uh, but it, it, overall, it looks pretty good, 
in terms of I, I assume that's what he wanted to look like, and in that, in that case, a good job. It looks like it. It, it looks like it was intended to look this way. It seems to fit in place really well. So, very good. Uh, I think that's a yeah. nice craftsmanship. Right, and just the, the fact that he accomplished it and it works, that's, uh, that's amazing. Now, there is another picture of the back, which uh, <laughs> has a little bit of a, a nest of wires on the back, but don't don't look underneath. Uh, <laughs> that might scare you. But uh, overall, it looks pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Cool, cool. Good work, Nick. All right, this next one is a YouTube video from 8 Bits in the Basement. This is, I like this. This is, this is an Alice 4K, a small little red computer from France. This is pretty much a direct copy of the MC10. Yeah, they're basically the same other yeah. than the video. Yeah, they, uh, from the outside, they, they look the same, but... Uh, this is, goes in more in depth into the Alice itself, and uh, the MC10, of course, is mentioned, and it's in English, so that's that's a plus as well. <laughs> a little hard to get English language uh, information on the Alice, but uh, um, thankfully, the Alice 4K at least is essentially the MC10, so you probably don't need to need to have a lot of, uh, of uh, English to be able to use it. And we have one from TI84 only at Instagram. And this one is called It's a Mystery. So I think this is specific to the CGP115 color graphics printer. And he was able to generate a set of special characters on that printer uh, using Telewriter. So it's just kind of interesting. It's like, did you know you could generate all these strange characters? It kind of implies that it's in the ROMs of the CGP-115. Right. Um, so, and I don't know if that's true or not, And uh, you know, it's, but it's, uh, it looks like a, a picture or a photocopy of some kind of Cocoa magazine from back in the day. There's a R.W. Odlin of Cedro Woolley, Washington. I don't know if I even said that correctly, but... <laughs> So I don't know really the origin here, but it looks like at least the makings of a little mystery if somebody wants to dig in <laughs> and right. find out the more information. It's uh, it's neat. It looks like um, it's some sort of. It looks a. Uh, it appear to be Asian characters of Asian script, and I don't know which Asian language, whether it's Japanese or Korean or Chinese or anything, could no. be. Vietnamese or whatever, I have no idea. <laughs> it, it could be, for all I know. Mm -hmm. um, not, it almost could be cuneiform, but <laughs> um, anyway, it's neat that somebody, it, it, the guess would be that somebody left a little Easter egg in that CGP-115 ROM for their own purposes back in the day. It, I'd love to know the real story, but yeah. anyway. Somewhere, somewhere there's a Rosetta Stone that will... <laughs> Tell us where the 256K or 56K. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see. Moving on. Um, so the next link here comes to us from Alan Huffman. There's a link onto his Sabitha um, blog. And uh, so this title, There's No Substitute for Real Hardware. And uh, it shows a picture of what, well, the, the, from the title, it says 6847T1 VDG demo. 
producing colors that I'm pretty sure the 6847 T1 or any version of the 6847 don't actually produce in real life, or at least not in any way that I know how to do it. Basically, what it amounts to is found what appeared to be an emulation error in a version of XROAR. He kind of elaborates on it, shows some pictures, whatever. You know, I think it makes a good point. There's no substitute for real hardware. So just because it works on the emulator <laughs> doesn't mean you're going to get the same results on real hardware, even when the emulator is something like XROAR, which puts a lot of effort into getting things right. Um, but, you know, no one's perfect, right? <laughs> Thanks for that, Alan. Alan uh, goes uh, he different periods where he writes a lot on his blog and or posts a lot of videos on YouTube. Usually some good information in there. You may want to subscribe to his YouTube channel or, or to check out his blog. And uh, it might be a, a fun way to spend a few, uh, a few minutes or hours now and then. So check it out. Yep, and that's, that's good because I think Karen already fixed that issue. Yeah, I think so. So finding bugs is always good. Exactly. If you're bored at Christmas time, please enjoy this chipmunk rhyme. We kindly suggest to you listen to the Coco Crew. John will keep us up to date. Neil reviews the games of late. Lots of info you can use. It's the Coco Crew. A special Christmas gift from Radio Shack. The TRS-80 color computer at $100 off. Instant loading program packs turn our color TV into a game arcade. The color computer is also an education center. There are over 30 games available. And it's perfect for home management. She's right. With a programmable, expandable computer, you can do more than just play games. Why, our son's even learning how to program. Save $100 on the TRS-80 color computer, only at Radio Shack, the computer experts. All right, so let's moving on. Uh, we'll have a, a YouTube video from AC's 8-Bit Zone. This is someone, uh, I don't know him, but uh, I've seen several videos from him relating to uh, the Coco. Uh, so he at least has uh, some Coco hardware that he likes to mess with from time to time. Someone who seems to know his way around a multimeter and or a soldering iron. <laughs> so he does, so in this case he had a Coco. He's having some problems uh, saving and, and loading uh, files to and from cassette tape. And so he goes in and does some analysis and looks at, you know, how the actual encoding is done, uh, where one is uh, encoded with a, a cycle at, at one speed and a, a one frequency and a, a zero is encoded with a cycle of a different frequency. And he gets to look at it and notices some discrepancies depending on, um, you know, when you switch from one to zero and back again too quickly, he takes what, I, as a software more or less guy, he takes what I would describe as a hardware guy <laughs> approach to solving this. And he looks at software and he looks at uh, some stuff, but definitely, um, and he actually fixes it by changing the software. Basically, the problem uh, it turns out to be um, that the 
the DAC chip on his Coco is not handling the transitions between zero and one fast enough to suit the or or to to properly lay down the bits in a way that can be decoded later. His approach to fix it, he actually hacks the ROM and changes the wavetable used for the cassette recording um, to to basically decrease the uh, the magnitude of the waves. So that then the transitions come back within the uh, the capability of the DAC, <laughs> and so it sort of fixes it, makes it more reliable by fixing some software. And uh, and maybe that's not such a bad case when you can a bad thing since you consider that the DAC chip itself is, is the originals are essentially unobtainable. Now we do have a project in the community from uh, Rocky Hill that's uh, has a replacement DAC available now or soon to be available, and he's working on it one way or another. And uh, there may be some other uh, alternative projects in the near future, so I hear. Anyway, the proper fix, in my opinion, is probably to replace the DAC chip, uh, which, like I said, in, in, in the real world is not actually a, a <laughs> an, a, an easy thing to do or to, to obtain the part. But uh, so he takes a, a clever um, alternative approach and actually changes the software to match the capabilities of the hardware. Uh, I'm not sure that has much legs for most people <laughs> if you happen to hit this problem. But then again, replacing the DAC chip at, pre at present also doesn't have a lot of legs. But maybe um, if you have this sort of problem and you can track down replacement DAC chips, then uh, that'll be a better answer in my opinion than trying to hack your ROM. Still, neat hack, lots of cool analysis, very good work to AC there. Well, I don't know what that stands for, but pretty cool and, and a good video and nice and, and entertaining, so very good. It is an educational. I think as a plus, his hack also works in uh, double speed mode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, very cool. And, um, uh, you know, like I said, it's definitely not downplaying it as a possibility. Just um, uh, probably not the uh, not the panacea for anyone who has. If you're having trouble loading cassettes or whatever, it's probably not the first thing you should try. <laughs> All right, moving on. So we have a video from on YouTube from Jeff Burt. Jeff Burt was one of the attendees, one of the speakers at uh, Tandy Assembly. He made a video about the event, the nice pictures from the event back in uh, in uh, October. I don't know what else to say other than it's a cool video, and uh, glad to have somebody who was excited enough to uh, document the event and publish it and make us all look good in, in the process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jeff's so, a nice guy. Great having yeah, you speak. Yep, so it's a cool event, and so here's a... Um, Someone else plugging it, so I'm plugging the plug. <laughs> Take a look, and I hope you enjoy. And the next one, of course, is from Kieran Anscombe, author of Ashroar. Kind of took a little shot at it <laughs> for the beginning of this little quatrain. Um, but Kieran is a, a very conscientious uh, developer for his uh, emulator, and uh, I think he has fixed the problem that Alan observed. And he's gone on to do a 1.0 release for Ashroar. And so uh, he says, drawing a line under all the tweaks I was making in time to release 
uh, and they'll suddenly notice several more uh, very obvious bugs. The story of our uh, every software developer's life there. This is 1.0. Why? Because now it does Tandy Cougar 3 and MC10. Well, mostly. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> uh, so very nice. So thank you, Karen. It's always good to have that contribution. Continue to serve the community and get better. And uh, very cool. Very good. My next news article is from friend of the show, Jim Gary. It's titled Dinosaur Run Game in 4K Basic. Um, so mm-hmm. unlike a conversion like that Jim usually does, uh, this is actually coded from scratch. Uh, it's a rendition of the modern classic, <laughs> the Dino Run game. <laughs> you know this qualifies as a D-make? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so oh. Same concept, a little bit... Uh... Funkier graphics, maybe, but considering uh, the target. Right. Right. Yeah. And it, and it states here it works only in 4K. So I guess you yeah. can't have the expansion pack? Oh, uh, well, I don't know if that's true or not, but probably means that you only need 4K. But... Yeah, that would make more sense, yeah. Anyways, it looks really cool. I mean, for 4K basic, it, it actually looks really nice. Oh, yeah, highly Keeps playable. It. Keeps a high score and everything. Very cool. Great work, Jim. Very cool. And, uh, next one up is from Tim Linder. Yeah, he's he's been busy here. Uh, this is uh, <laughs> Sibling Rivalry, uh, Episode 1, and there's six different episodes here. Looks like they, they cover uh, six different games here. Yeah, and television, three different systems. Yeah, and television and... Uh, Looks like Atari and definitely the Coco. That's yeah. Uh, color based. Yeah, I think this is uh, this is Tim playing uh, various games with. Uh, I take it it's his sister. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Oh, is this okay. cute? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, it's fun just, to watch. That's awesome. They kind of just a little brother and sister having some fun, uh, reminiscing from their childhood, uh, playing on some old hardware or whatever. Pretty cool, kind of fun. You know, it's and it's not popcorn television or anything, but uh, <laughs> kind of a cool idea. It might be inspirational for you and to get with uh, your siblings or or age old friends or whatever and try some similar. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I like to see stuff like this. That's great. All right, uh, next news article is from Karsten Runquist, and uh, this is a video. Uh, looks like on YouTube here. Uh, why 4x3 looks so good. That's the uh, 4x3 aspect ratio. A little bit artsy in the some of the explanation there, but I thought, uh, you know, 4x3 for TVs, it kind of, it kind of calls to us, right? So <laughs> maybe yeah. you can use this to, to back up your, your, uh, your predilection for old TVs to anyone who uh, challenges you on it or tells you that you have to have widescreen. <laughs> you tell, oh, yeah. <laughs> next one here uh, last on my list is from uh, Pierre Surratt Uh, he's done it again he's uh, converted another batch of uh, AGD uh, converted games Uh, and this is it's actually pack 41 he uh, made an error called it pack 42 but it's uh, pack 41 and there's a pile of games in here that's been uh, converted over very nice very cool 
nice to have that as a source of games. I think we speculated that way back that, boy, if somebody would just get to converting those, um, it'd be, it'd sure be nice. And, and then next thing you know, Pear was doing it, uh, started with a dragon, but, you know, obviously being able to target the Coco as well. You know, she's done and, uh, it's been a great boon to us and having some extra stuff to play and, uh, build a community, that sort of thing. Very cool. Very good pair. Yeah, Thanks. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So that's the end of our scheduled news items. I think we, uh, might have something to, to add from, uh, from Mr. Boise if you'd like to share with us. Sure. So, uh, this is in relation to the Turbo 9 project that Mr. Kevin Phillipson and Mr. Michael Rywalt are working on. This project has been discussed on the news segment of the podcast before. For those who haven't heard of it, the Turbo 9 is a, a pipelined implementation of the 6809 in modern FPGA along with some other improvements. The news is that I am now an official member of the Turbo 9 team, working with Kevin and Michael. And uh, going forward, I will be working with them to improve their work and do some research on it. We are presenting uh, our final, well, their final uh, uh, fall semester report that will be made available online shortly on YouTube. And my PhD research work will be uh, focused on a direction from their work on the Turbo 9. So I'm very excited to announce that. That's awesome. Very good. Very good. That's great. Cool to see yep. the work progress. Yep, very much so. It's uh, There's some impressive results that I will wait for for the video that will be released in the next few days, uh, probably by the time the podcast comes out. I'm sure it'll be out. Uh, but very impressive results uh, that we've been working on stacking up against other class processors, and even some modern ones. So I think it will be very impressive results. Well, that's our news segment for this month. So why don't we take another little break, and we'll be back uh, with uh, some feedback. You love the classic Moto 6809. It's classic lines. It's a DIP package. It's elegant instruction set and the 6309 improved on the classic design. You've loved cruising the ROMs together for decades, but today, something new is arriving. The next generation of microprocessors implementing the Motorola 6809 instruction set. Introducing the Turbo 9 microprocessor IP. Ready for soft core IP, Fairlog RTL, FPGAs, and custom ASICs. Three new models that speak the same 6809 language as their predecessors, but with modern features under the hood. Instruction pipelining, advanced risk micro-op translation, and dual 16-bit ALUs. The Turbo 9 with the classic 16-bit internal data path and 8-bit data bus with two-cycle 16-bit transactions. The sporty Turbo 9S with a 16-bit data bus, one-cycle aligned 16-bit transactions, and two-cycle unaligned transactions. And the racing Turbo 9R with a 16-bit data bus and one-cycle 16-bit transactions. The Turbo 9 models are set to tear up the memory map. 
beating both AVR and RISC-V implementations in Drystone benchmark tests. Search YouTube for Turbo 9 Pipeline for details. Turbo 9, the classic model of the 6809 instruction set reimagined. All right, Coco Cruisers and Coco Maniacs, now it's time to hear from you. We're here with some feedback. Just a couple items this month. Uh, let's see, the first item uh, comes from uh, the Nick Rizvac. Uh, we mentioned him in the uh, news section as he had the uh, homemade keyboard uh, with the with the nest of wires on the back. <laughs> but a uh, good craftsmanship overall, of course. Anyway, Nick says, uh, just a quick hello and to say thank you for mentioning my joystick project. It's uh, talking about it in episode 73. So of course, Nick, we're happy to do so. And uh, post whenever you do something cool, post it to, to Facebook or uh, or to the mailing list. Post it where we can see it, and uh, that helps us when we collect the news and be able to put things in the show notes. So. Very good. Anyway, thank you, Nick. It's good to see your work, and I'm glad you're having fun with the cocoa. All right. Uh, let's see the next item. <laughs> this is from Salvador Garcia. Salvador is a, a place to poke a little fun from here and there. Talking, uh, I posted a, a picture to the Facebook group, the, the Cocoa Crew Facebook group, of me in a Santa hat with a beard, <laughs> a natural beard, just for the record. Uh, said something about um, Merry Christmas to the minions of the Dark Lord or something like that, playing on the uh, the long-standing joke about me being the Dark Lord of the Coco. Uh, it's a long story. <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, just uh, smile and nod. Anyway, he says, uh, <laughs> he says, you look horrible as a Christmas Dark Lord. So, <laughs> so poking a little fun at me. Um, Check out the Facebook Coco Crew uh, podcast group, or um, I'm probably going to include the images uh, at the end of our show notes if you want to check that out, just the picture. Thanks, Salvador, for uh, for helping us uh, maintain the sense of humor. All right, so that's the end of our feedback for this month. So let's take another little break, and then um, we'll be back with uh, a discussion. Put the past behind you. Introducing the Gamester. The Gamester is the ultimate two-button joystick controller for your color computer, Dragon, and Tandy 1000. The Gamester features a genuine arcade-quality joystick with two large arcade-quality cherry switch buttons on a single surface. Best of all, the hardware is mounted in a sturdy wooden cabinet. It sits comfortably on your lap or on your desk. Experience the difference that super high-quality, heavy-duty components make in your gameplay. No more finger fatigue. Responsive button switches. Sturdy components that can take the punishment of even the most enthusiastic player. Every Gamester is built to order. Choose the wood for your cabinet. Choose custom paint or stain and finishes. Select the cable length for your Gamester. Choose a left-handed configuration or add adapters for your Dragon computer. The Gamester is designed to last a lifetime. To build yours, simply reach out to Neil Blanchard by email. Neil at CocoCrew.org. That's N-E-I-L at C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W dot org. Experience genuine arcade controller action for all of your favorite color computer, Dragon, and Tandy 1000 computer games. For true arcade action, it's The Gamester.
Cocoa Cruisers, welcome back to our host discussion. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, noticed, I couldn't help but notice, there have been a few projects that have popped up recently, and it seems like no matter what the project is, by the time we hear somebody announce the project, then we hear we immediately get the link to their um, crowdfunding uh, <laughs> associated with the, their project, whether it's Patreon, or whether it's GoFundMe, or whatever. There's several other options, of course. And, you know, I guess that makes sense for some projects. In some, in some cases, there are things that require money to keep doing. Some things maybe don't require that much money, but uh, I don't know, some people seem to like to have a way to show appreciation to people doing things, uh, and uh, that's one way to do so. I can't say that that's something that I tend to want to do myself. Um, maybe I'm a greedy old man, whatever. But <laughs> we do this podcast. I've always been it's always been free. The only ex uh, assistance we've gotten is we do get hosting from Cyber Years, but uh, before that we have, were paying for uh, uh, hosting on a different service. Anyway, uh, it's nice that people want to help out. But uh, it's not always clear to me that um, it should be necessary. It kind of, no, it depends. So the question is, the gruff way to say it is, why are we paying someone else to do their hobby? The nicer way is, what makes it worthwhile to you to contribute money to someone else working on something for the hobby? Um, and there may be perfectly good reasons here. Uh, one that comes to mind to me is if they're doing something that somehow involves research or whatever that um, has some expense that's maybe too much to expect one person or a small group to fund, but and that you but you want to see the research done, um, that's that is something that makes sense to me. Something else along those lines might be if somebody was doing a book. For example, if someone was doing some sort of history book or, or other book that requires a certain amount of research and time to write, that sort of thing. Maybe a third option kind of along those lines is someone is producing a game and you have confidence that the game is going to be uh, something that you want to play and you want to reward them for taking the time and effort to do it. And I'm sure there's other options where it makes sense to people. But what concerns me is that uh, some people seem ready to jump uh, <laughs> at, at every guy that comes out and opens up his guitar case and and, th and leaves it open on the sidewalk. Some people are desperate to come and throw money in the, in the case, even when the guy's not playing any music yet. <laughs> Maybe a few people have their hands out before they've shown that they are they're getting anything, uh, they're doing anything to earn it. I don't know. So this is where I've walked out on the limb and I've uh, put the saw in my hands. <laughs> and here I saw am. Halfway through. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm going to turn it over to some of my co-hosts to see whether they, they uh, whether they saw the limb off behind me or somehow rescued me from the end. So who, who should go first? I, I told Neil I was going to pick on him. So Neil, how about you? You go ahead and chime in. All right. Well, I uh, I agree with what you're saying. To me, it depends on the project or product that's offering. Like something I, I would add to that is, uh, you know, like a new piece of hardware. 
that I wouldn't mind, you know, pitching in, right? Doing a, you know, donation, you know, to get this project off the ground. Because, I mean, a lot of cool things have come from um, crowdfunded sources that we would have necessarily not had, you know, software and hardware. Mm -hmm. I do agree that, you know, you know, pe people paying, you know, before anything is even, um, you know, really even thought out. I mean, that's that's not right either. So, um, you know, it, well, it's not necessarily wrong. No, it just might not be the brightest thing. But yeah, just kind of jumping the gun, you know. I think, but yeah, I mean, everybody's different. Well, like I, I, for I'm example, to it, you know, right. So, for example, I mean. Say for my, my example of, of someone writing a game. Uh, now, if it's someone who's written games before, you know, a, a Nick Morantes for, to, as an example, or a Chet Simpson, or someone like that, that actually has some proven chops, shall we say. Maybe that makes a reasonable amount of sense. But if somebody just shows up out of nowhere and says, hey, I'm going to write a game, send me $20 and I'll do it, you probably wouldn't fund that right i mean i wouldn't but you know what what level of skill or experience uh, does somebody need to show to make that worthwhile um and there, and there might be somebody who shows up and say well i've never programmed for the coco before but i used to be a professional nintendo entertainment system programmer and i'm sure i can do it w would that be enough to convince you that it's worth 20 bucks or 50 bucks or you know whatever i don't know I guess that's one where it actually have to happen for me to see. Extending that to, to your hardware example, which is similar to the game example, but if somebody says, "I'm gonna I'm gonna build a piece of hardware for the Coco," are you gonna ask them, "Well, are you an electrical engineer, or you know, are you a dental assistant, a dental hygienist, you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or, or whatever?" You know, I mean, and there's no nothing that says that somebody who's a dental hygienist can't have an electronics hobby. Especially when you're talking about something for 8-bit computers, they probably could design, or somebody with an interest probably could design certain pieces of hardware. Maybe it would work out, maybe not. Uh, and someone someone that's not a big-time professional might be the kind of person that doesn't have the cash funds to float to cover R&D expenses for something. Maybe that's the appropriate case is you send money because you you believe in Joe and Joe just doesn't have any cash or says he doesn't or whatever, right? I don't know. It's one that's a little hard to toss around for me. I do know something about what it costs to, to make a podcast, which is not zero, but it's not necessarily very much either. <laughs> and so I see a lot of podcasts show up and it seems like they spend as much time talking about their Patreon as they do anything else. I'm not always sympathetic to that. Let me put it that way. Right. Someone I know who has a lot of sympathy. Um, so, Boise, what do you think on this topic? I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> I'll tell you how I construct my own projects. I never ask for money up front for anything that I do. Everything that I've created for the Cocoa, I've done, and then I've either sold it or given it away. And I take that same approach to the people I support and the projects I support. I wait for something to turn into a product before I put money on it. That's just how I do it. 
Everyone is free to do what they want. It's a free country. You can ask for money up front. You can set up a Patreon or whatever, whatever you want to do. It's your choice. I just don't contribute that way myself. Well, I mean, let me let me add here, if it's not obvious, and sometimes it isn't, just because I'm asking a question doesn't mean I'm trying to tell you you have to agree with me or that you right. have to do it my way or whatever. And if you would rather be seen as the charitable person that gives money away to anyone who shows up with an idea, or you fancy yourself the benefactor or even the the venture capitalist of retro computing, that's fine. If that's what you want to do, as long as you, I mean, if you didn't, didn't acquire your stuff illegally in the first place, I guess, but I don't have any way of knowing that anyway. So (laughs) whatever, Um, you know, you don't need my permission to do any of these things. You don't need Boise's permission. You don't need Mike's permission. You don't need Neil's permission. Neil will probably give it because he's Canadian and they're nice like that. But Anyway, you don't need any of our permissions to do these things just because I'm asking. I'm asking because I'm legitimately curious what you guys think and what would motivate these decisions for you and what am I missing. Um, So anyway, with that said, so put the pitchforks down and, uh, you know, you can curse me out later at at, at TND Assembly when you show up or whatever. This 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 is my opinion. Doesn't mean right. you have to agree with it, or you can agree with it or disagree with it. I really don't care. Doesn't mean that you should do it. I'm, I'm not, I'm not advocating telling people what to do. I know that I've been accused of that in the past when that wasn't my intent. But I'll just reiterate what John said: do whatever you want to do. But for me, I tend to support with my dollars when there's something to buy. That's just how I do it. On the same token. I don't ask for any money up front, and I don't ask for a monthly payment or a stipend or whatever you want to call it. I just tend to do my own thing and either give it away or – and I really don't sell stuff anymore. I just – at this point in my life, I just work on what I want to work on, and if I think it's of interest, I'll make the source code available. That's how I do things. So, Cool. Well, that makes sense to me. Yeah, I hear Mike's getting started there. So go ahead, Mike, tell us. That's right. Well, as, as I was originally called the dean of the Coco Crew podcast. Uh, that's right. Uh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll help you uh, maybe back that saw out a little bit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, and I think there's two different distinctions here, too. There are places that just have a, uh, like Patreon is popular for, if you like the show and you want to send us some money, to cover our expenses, great. Otherwise, if you want to watch the show for free, there's no problem with that either. That's good because I think that's, uh, I mean, if you're going to do that at all, it, it's good because it leaves the choice to the viewer. And there are people that say, well, I can't, I'm not a technical person, but I really enjoy the show and I don't, or I don't have the time, but I do have some excess money. If I can throw a few dollars and, and keep the entertainment going and, you know, help my enjoyment, then I'll kick in some money. There's absolutely nothing. We all vote with our dollars, right? Is what it comes down to in the end. Sure. We, uh, it's it's kind of a form of free speech, I guess. Uh, oh yeah. And there are there are YouTube uh, channels that I subscribe to that have Patreon elements, and I guess that's the other category. Is there's people with a paywall. There are many podcasts and 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 YouTube channels that we watch that sometimes say, well, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you get these extra benefits. 
to kind of lure people in. And we even have that in the cocoa community. And you're right. It's always up to the individual to figure out, uh, you know, if they want to, if you want to donate, just like you were saying, I I doubt that I'm going to be giving money to somebody that you described as, as I'm going to start a Kickstarter, even though, you know, no questions asked. I don't know what your capabilities are. But then again, it's like playing the lottery or the stock market, right? I think it's all very subjective. There's no, it's not, it's not wrong. It's, I, I guess, context is everything when it, when it comes to uh, what you're doing with that. Um, you know, and if you're just doing it for donations to support your show or, or, or your cause or whatever, uh, you know, that leaves it up to the individual to give or not give. I think I know, you know, I, I Tell me if I'm not speaking for everybody, but we've had these discussions because we've been offered, uh, you know, we have enough uh, subscribership that we've been offered uh, advertising opportunities and things that we've ended up turning down, mostly because we don't want to take advantage of listeners or we don't want to feel beholden to anybody. To add to what Mike is saying, I, I, I agree that when you take money, you become beholden to people. And how can I say this? We have a sense of independence by saying and doing our own thing in the podcast, right? I think right, there's a fair exchange of dollars when you, when you offer a product for sale. You've already put the time and the work into making that product and you want to sell it or make, you know, sell in copies of it, whatever it is, hardware, software, right? So it's a fair exchange. Um, I just feel uncomfortable. I would feel uncomfortable asking for money up front for something or even, you know, um, for, for in this case for the podcast, it's just not something I, I I think we need to do. All of us that are part of the podcast, or you know, for the little expense it takes, it's mostly a time expense for us, and that's pretty much it, right? So taking people's money for for what, you know, for our time, it just mm. you know, it doesn't make sense to me to do that. Right. And again, it's 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 in our our context. Uh, if 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 we spend a lot of money, we might we probably think differently. If we had to spend a lot of equipment or something, you know, on equipment or a service, if we didn't yeah. have, uh, you know, if it costs us hundreds of dollars a month, we we right. might choose not to do it or or rethink, uh, you know, funding it some way that way. So, yeah. yeah so don't need to be uh, overly moralistic about any of it. Really, in the end, it just comes down to the, the context and what you're comfortable with doing and, and how you present it. Uh, of course, some of these uh, really big podcasts and YouTube channels are doing it for monetary reasons. So, right. You know, it's they're, a business. They're, yeah, yeah, that's right. right. It's a business. So that changes yeah. everything. They're, they're looking to make a profit and uh, are looking to, you know, be supported off of those donations. So. Well, sure. And, and there's certainly, like you said, I think you're reiterating that if you want to spend your money on these things, then do so. Uh, and my whole point was really just to ask, but why? In the first place, I mean, what was motivating you to, to do that? What makes you want to do that? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm still a little cloudy, I think, that, uh, you know, I, I mean, I can see some of the things, like if there, there are certain, certain situations I can see, but uh, probably closer to the Kickstarter than the Patreon situations, to be honest, for me. But uh, meaning, you know, kind of, well, I want that piece of hardware, and that's not going to get produced without it. Um, that makes sense. But the, um, you know, some of the others, 
paying people to get together and do their hobby. <laughs> like, I want to be paid to do my hobby. Um, but, uh, well, anyway, well, I think of, uh, of, uh, dented in the end of my takeovers, uh, kicking this can around. <laughs> um, <laughs> so pretty, I'm not sure we resolved anything, but maybe we kicked up a few questions. If you've, if you're angry or if you're excited and supportive, either way, send us an email to feedback, F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K, at cococrew.org. And uh, let us know what you're thinking. Let us know how it made you angry or, or what invisible line I've crossed or, you know, what compare me to a feminine hygiene product or, or whatever it is you want to do. Um, we'll love to have your email and, um, to our Patreon and I was going to say, <laughs> well, get ready and donate to our Patreon. And, um, and, uh, and if you want to hear about my only fans, send an email to John at COVIDGrew.org. <laughs> and, uh, well, that'll probably have to do us for now. Why don't we, uh, draw this to a close and, um, Probably be back with uh, whatever's left of the show. Showbiz is the category for this round. And there it is. And Paula, you'll start. Seven hundred. C. Uh yeah, four C's. I'd like to buy a vowel. Okay. An O. Let's see, there are three. Pat, I'd like to solve the Coco Crew podcast. You got it, yeah. This month in Coco history. Welcome to This Month in Coco History, where we explore events in the life of our favorite home computer. I'm Boise Pete, and this month we go back 38 years to the December 1983 issue of Hot Cocoa and a spreadsheet for the elite in all of us. Pages 19 to 24 of the issue feature a rather extensive review of Elite Calc, a spreadsheet for the TRS-80 color computer written by Bruce M. Cook of Elite Software out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The review, written by Scott L. Norman, goes in depth into the capabilities of this $60 spreadsheet software package starting with its memory requirements. Elite Calc runs on Cocos from 16K to 64K of RAM and makes most of that memory available for cell content, allowing for rather sizable spreadsheets. Elite Calc allows numbers to be formatted to specific decimal places, can display them in scientific notation, and provides a number of justification options within cells. The expected formulas like sum and average exist, but EliteCalc also supports transcendental and logarithmic functions, as well as truncation and rounding operators. There are also if-then-else constructs, which allow you to devise intricate and complex logical operations. You can sort data and even replicate a partial row or column to fill an entire rectangle block of cells using the copy or replicate commands. Remarkably, all of this functionality was on a COCO, with just a 32 by 16 character screen. Today. Programs like Numbers and Excel easily surpass Elite Calc in power and speed, but the basic tenets of the spreadsheet remain the same as it did four decades earlier. 
And that's this month in Coco History. Boy, the cartridge games we played. All the aliens we slayed. Man, it was your own arcade. Those were the days. Loaded games from tape cassette. Floppy drives and curdy debt. Wasted time with no regret. Those were the days. And you didn't need a hard drive then. Line printers replaced your pen. Mr. We could use a man like Charles Tandy again. BBS has ruled the day. Copy served to have your pay. Fit it all in 64K. Those were the days. We sat and stared at glowing screens. Everybody's loyalty was determined by their machines. When you had a job to do, basic always got you through. Accidentally typing new, those were the days. Greetings, Coco Cruisers. This is John Linville. I'm here now with your Coco Crew tech segment for this month. This month, I thought I'd give a little bit of a primer on uh, VLSI design or implementation. I don't know. <laughs> so it's been a topic recently, particularly with uh, Roger Taylor's project to decap the gimme chips and ostensibly in hopes of uncovering the <laughs> lost 256 color mode or at least, shall we say, misunderstood, <laughs> more mythical 256 color mode. Anyway, um, perhaps I'm a bit skeptical, but regardless, it's from the comments that people have made. Uh, it seems pretty clear that they don't fully understand the technology or the scope of the project when it comes to decapping a chip and actually learning the inside. So people's hopes are uh, kind of high thought it might be helpful for me to at least, well, if not let the air out of the balloon, at least um, cover some stuff and prepare people for where things might go. And uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, best of luck, and maybe there's a magical thing there to find. I would love to report on that. Uh, I'd love to play with that. But, you know, as it is, well, we'll see. So as for VLSI, well, I make my living as a software engineer. However, I, I did uh, take a in, in a graduate school uh, on VLSI design. That was in the mid-90s, and considering how these things maybe um, trail, you know, academics trails a little bit from what's actually in practice. Uh, I suspect my mid-90s level education on VLSI is probably talking just about right for the um, technology involved with VLSI and the mid to late 80s uh, when we're talking about the uh, design of the gimme chip for the cocoa so could be wrong i don't think it's that wrong 
<laughs> if uh, if you don't if you're not interested, well, you go ahead and fast forward now. But if you are, hang out and I'll tell you what I think I know or at least uh, what I believe. So anyway, so here's a VLSI primer for Cocoa Cruisers. What is VLSI? Very large scale integration process of creating an integrated circuit by combining uh, millions of MOS, that's metal oxide semiconductor transistors, onto a single chip. So the MOS refers to a particular way of building transistors in silicon. They're not all built the same way. There's at least two fundamental design uh, or types of designs for tra uh, transistors, MOS transistors, or, you know, or um, there's bipolar junction transistors, which are kind of built similarly to the way diodes are built. Anyway, we're not going to talk about BJTs. We're not going to talk about uh, a lot of details on MOS or MOSFETs, but MOS is the kind of technology we're talking about. So there you go. Uh, just for historical stuff, let's see, VLSI, the technology began in the 70s when MOS integrated chips were widely adopted, integrated circuits, uh, rather, a MOS <laughs> transistors on integrated circuits were widely adopted, uh, enabling complex semiconductor and telecommunication technologies to be developed, according to Wikipedia. Uh, microprocessor and memory trips are VLSI devices. For VLSI tech, uh, most ICs had a limited set of functions that they could perform, so this might include small uh, amplifiers or simple logic gates. Think, uh, uh, well, think like the 555 timer or the 741 op-amp or uh, 74 series logic, that sort of stuff. But so with VLSI, line up, as I say, millions of transistors on a single chip, that allowed the IC designers to put a lot more functionality on a given chip. Now, VLSI Technology, Inc., <laughs> it might be something that you thought of. It was an American company that designed and manufactured custom and semi-custom integrated circuits. Along with LSI Logic, VLSI technology defined the leading edge of the application-specific integrated circuit business. And you're talking about the mid to late 80s, uh, early 90s, perhaps. Initially, the company, VLSI Technology, often referred to itself as VTI for VLSI Technology, Inc., and so they had a logo, VTI, a distinctive-looking VTI logo. So if you've been looking at the pictures from the, the Gimme dies that um, Roger Taylor has made available, you'll see the VTI logo. So they're talking about that same company when we're talking about the Gimme. So <laughs> how about that? VLSI was forced to drop the VTI designation in the mid-'80s because of a trademark conflict. So if you're wondering why, they don't, why you don't hear them now. Also, because VLSI was acquired in June of 99 for about a billion dollars by Philips Electronics. And it's today part of the uh, Philips spinoff NXP semiconductors. So now they're making arm chips, <laughs> amongst other things. So let's cover some fundamentals. So for when you're doing a VLSI design, transistors and other features so sometimes you, you have capacitors even resistors that are drawn onto the chips so they're designed by drawing scale depictions of the physical layers of silicon polysilicon metal or insulating material that are actually in the chip it's almost like the little pcb design except that instead of just the pcb you know with the traces would be the, the metal layer primarily 
um, you're actually designing the the parts too, so the capacitors and transistors and <laughs> all that stuff. So you have to draw all those. So the connections between these various features are specified literally by the geographical relationships uh, as in these drawings. So they're essentially a little map of where things are and how they're interconnected. If there's a line, if there's a piece of the part going off to the right and touches another piece of a part, those two parts are interconnected in real life too. So <laughs> very physical oriented thing. So this is also true for the features themselves. So the, the size and even the shape of the various layers matter. So like a transistor is going to have N-type and P-type silicon parts, and uh, you're going to have to draw them together on the board or on the, the diagram. And so you don't just put down a square, say that's a transistor. You have to put down a square over a, or, a, or a rectangle over another rectangle with a, at least a, a reasonably correct orientation and you build the transistor that way you're actually building the parts yourself um so like i said you're not just putting down a little mark and then saying that's a transistor you're actually having to make the marks as if it, it really is a transistor so because that literally is what you're doing so once you've got these shapes defined and for the various layers look through the application of photolithography and chemistry and physics i guess <laughs> um you actually create the the silicon representation of your drawing. They're created on uh, multiple dies at a time, and they're all put onto what's called a wafer, which is kind of like the uh, a wafer is almost like the lumber, <laughs> the raw material used for building the chips. Once this is the wafers have had the photolithography and such applied to them, they come out, and then they're cut apart into little little rectangles or whatever uh, and then the little rectangles get mounted into you know, it's usually a ceramic or sometimes plastic or maybe there's other ways to package them these days i don't know but ceramic or plastic the little things that look like well, they look like little bugs <laughs> One of the, the little uh, squares of plastic or ceramic with metal pins coming off of them back in the old days there were pins that actually stuck through the board Nowadays, they're more like a, well, nowadays, it, you don't even see them at all because they're not just on the bottom of the chip. And they're, anyway, they're pins from the, connecting the outside world to the, the chip on the inside. But that's all sealed up in ceramic or plastic or whatever. You don't normally see them, right? Well, we'll get back to, to that in just a little bit. And what, what do you do when you're trying to figure out how to reverse engineer one of these? But let's talk about the types of designs that were available and so of course you you could always build what's called a, a full custom uh, asic asic again is application specific integrated circuit so you could go full custom so you could design the whole thing every chip i mean every uh, transistor every logic gate uh, every little capacitor or resistor or whatever that might be on there your guy, you or your guys or whatever had to draw them yourself. <laughs> this obviously gives you a lot of flexibility and that the chip can do whatever you told it to do. It also means you have to cover everything, so it's a lot more work unless you've got your own building blocks set up. There's no putting together pieces like Legos or whatever. You're actually down there at the bottom. It's like 
trying to build a, a radio receiver with nothing but Apollo resistors. <laughs> so you have to you have to really know what you're doing, and it takes a lot of effort. So it wasn't too long, I guess, somebody figured out that you could do what are called uh, semi-custom designs. So this is where you do part of it, somebody else does part of it. And um, these were implemented in a number of ways. Uh, one way to do things is you could have standard cells, uh, so you could actually have ch big chunks of circuit designed already that uh, quite often would be like a flexible logic cell or whatever, that not unlike what you might would find in an FPGA where you know the, you have a chunk of logic gauge kind of strung together, and depending on how they're hooked up and what they're hooked up to or, or and such, they can implement a lot of different functionality. But still, they're standard cells, so to, to provide that extra functionality, they need to have a lot of flexibility built into them, which means they take up a little more space. Um, they might be a little slower because of blocking constraints or whatever. Probably a lot faster to design with because you don't really have to, well, you don't have to draw them. <laughs> and in many cases, they'll be flexible enough. You might can, you know, just sort of lay them down in your head. You probably don't have to do because if you're at that level, you're probably designing with an HDL of some sort. But if you did have to lay one down or if you had to look at the actual design, you could probably get your head around it pretty quick. And you see a lot of, it would almost look like stuff is stamped out onto your, your die. Uh, they're going to look the same, lined up against each other or whatever. Probably a, a classic example of this would be like a bit sliced view or whatever that, you know, where you're handling a bit at a time and you just lay a bunch of them down in there. If you put eight down, if you had an 8-bit CPU, if you put down 16, you got a 16-bit CPU. <laughs> if you don't know about bit sliced uh, CPUs or bit sliced AOUs, it's probably what you hear more. Feel free to, to take a, a look and do your own research. If you have trouble finding stuff, feel free to reach out. I'll try to help you. <laughs> but it's not super interesting. But, you know, mention it. There you go. Um, anyway, so there are standard cell custom designs. You probably hit some limitations at some point, but probably based more on space than anything. Like with an FPGA, you only have so many cells or whatever, I guess the term for an FPGA or CPLD. You only have so many elements available and they can only be configured certain ways. You still deal with that kind of problem in an ASIC. You just, you know, you probably have a little more available for your use specifications. That's another option. You can have customized gate arrays or whatever. So this is done. This is kind of similar to the standard cells, but where you're picking out of the library and down more at the gate level. So things like NAND gates, NOR gates, whatever. So they'll be laid out. They'll be smaller. They'll be require a little more layout. Well, generally the tools can do that for you. But anyway, these these uh this is another option as you can do it at a gate level. Um, and so then once you get to that kind of gate level design, that's your design is basically uh, all digital at that point, and the implementation is you know through the library of provided parts. Sometimes you have customization at the metal layers or at other layers sometimes. So this is basically, this is that becomes very uh, akin to designing a PCB where you have parts of the chip that do certain things and you just plug them together um, at the, let's say, at the metal layer, which is probably the most similar to laying out a PCB. But so anyway, you can see where that would be cheaper and that 
theoretically you could even do a multi-step build on the uh, wafers and then apply the metal layers later if you assume you can line everything up correctly i assume that's possible but i don't know for sure like i said any of these semi-custom designs you're doing this for um you you have an engineering trade-off or you um you're dealing with economics and or required performance stuff that might push you in spending more for a better performance or you might accept lower performance for better economics so it's all a trade-off uh, between size of the implementation you know in terms of the die size basically corresponds to cost although there might also be a you know a yield cost to, to consider where you can build them and some of them will work but a lot of them won't for whatever reason yeah, we're not going to get too deep into that one, but so uh, depending on how how you've uh, what what parts are semi custom, like your standard cells or whatever, it might not be as flexible as you need for your actual design or as you want for your actual design. So if you went with a fully custom ASIC, you know you have the most flexibility, but you're going to have the most cost. So anyway, life is like that. <laughs> what are the steps if you want to do this design? Well, obviously, if you're designing a, a digital ASIC, you probably don't start off at the transistor level. <laughs> Generally speaking, you don't start off your digital circuits. Unless you're designing a very small gate, you usually start off with your, your digital design by thinking about the transistor level stuff. So if you're doing a more modern ASIC, you'll almost certainly start in sort of HTL, uh, or that's a hardware design language. And so the most um, well-known of these would be um, VHDL, and um, I can't remember what the V stands for. <laughs> the HDL part stands for um, Hardware Description Language, of course. And there's one known as a Vero, yes. Uh, so VHDL is a VHSIC Hardware Description Language. <laughs> and I don't know what VHSIC is. Anyway, so acronyms upon acronyms. You got to love the geeks, right? So these are pretty well known, and um, probably if you come out of the an EE these days, you probably have at least some exposure to VHDL and or Verilog. There used to be Verilog had sort of a closer affinity with university like teaching stuff, and VHDL was more the professional thing. I'm not sure that's still true, and uh, and that it used to be kind of a Ford versus Chevy thing too to some degree. But I'm, I'm not sure that that really lasts. Uh, so people who learn VHDL and then they learn Verilog and as necessary. Verilog used to be a little more focused on um, simulation of designs or whatever, which gave it a, a little bit different taste to it. I don't know. I've heard VHDL described as being similar to the um, ADA programming language and Verilog described as being similar to the C programming language. I haven't done enough of either to confirm that, although I at least confirmed the initial <laughs> reaction that way. So your mileage may vary, whatever. If you're starting today, you'd probably start with one of those. There's probably other languages available that you might need to start with, either because of, perhaps because of who your actual ASIC vendors or, or probably more likely because of who you work for or whatever, but it'll probably be something somewhere. One way you could start, and I think this is still legit as a way to do uh, designs, you actually could start with a, a some sort of schematic, usually done at, um, well, maybe at a gate level, so AND gates and OR gates, possibly at a block level, so you might have a, um, you know, so a block that represents a MUX or even a register file or something like that. 
that would be kind of a, a very visual way to do your design. I don't know. I've never done them that way, probably for my own preference, because I'm fundamentally a software guy, I guess. But <laughs> um, but it's it's a reasonable way you could do things, and I don't know if this if that was more used more often or not in the past. Anyway, once you have the kind of that initial description or the, the fundamental description of the design, you have to to move on to well, I guess to synthesis, or you might do, you probably can simulate from that level of design, depending on your tool set. You might have to synthesize and then do simulation. You might simulate, do synthesis, then do a different simulation. It's going to depend a bit on your tool set. I haven't done, uh, <laughs> I haven't done the sort of work, and you know, at least since college. So, you know, your mileage may vary, but. Let's say, though, that you get through whatever your initial round of simulation that convinces you that at least logically uh, your your design is sound. At some point, you're going to have to do a synthesis, meaning you're going to need to take your design description and turn it into something that starts to become implementable or is implementable. And so this is a lot like compiling. If you're using a, a, natural, a normal programming language for, you know, for a CPU to execute or whatever, this is a lot like compiling your C code or assembling your assembly language code. You do um, uh, synthesis so that, um, again, you turn your description into something that the computer can actually use <laughs> to move on with your design. Again, after you synthesize, you, there might be another layer of simulation or maybe the first level of simulation. Once you play with that, you're going to get that to where you're satisfied that your design is correct. At some point, I can't remember what the proper term is for this last step, but I'm going to call it here rendering, meaning you're going to take whatever that you know somewhat verified output that's past your simulation and actually turning it into pictures of what you're going to produce. And these the pictures are going to be the equivalent of a Gerber file. You were doing a, a PCB or a circuit board. I don't think Gerber is the proper format for VLSI. It could be. I might be wrong. Anyway, something like a Gerber file is going to have to come out, and that's going to get passed on to your fab house. God knows what they have to do. There's probably nine more steps uh, <laughs> to turn that into whatever's actually needs to be done to produce actual silicon and uh, and get it back to you. But feel free to read up on that and let me know. If you know, um, feel free to send some feedback, and uh, we'll use it to educate the other listeners. All right, so assuming you've done all this, or assuming someone else did all this, say, 30 years ago, and you want to know more about specifics of, of a given chip, say, a gimme chip, and so you want to reverse engineer it, there's a couple of types of techniques that might apply, probably more than a couple. Basically, at least on the way I'm seeing it right now, they break down into either you can take a brute force approach, or maybe you can take a what I call a deep analysis approach. If you're going to do a brute force, uh, you might find a way to try to exercise the device with software, for example, something that's programmable. You're going to hit every register with every combination of bits and see what you get from them. And I think we've had a lot of people who've tried the variations on this approach over the few years, some with more success than others. It's a big job if you try to do that. Trying to not just generating all the different inputs, but also trying to evaluate what did you really get. You're going to have to look at specific outputs, and something else might change. Uh, 
Uh, when my dog goes running out into the yard at night and barking, and then if you watch, sometimes you'll see um, after he's gone past, uh, a deer will step out from behind a tree and <laughs> run off into the field. So you got to be looking at the right place for that, I guess is what I'm getting at. So another option is uh, you might have a hardware approach and basically hook up when we have um, a way to control every pin uh, on the device and monitor every other pin on the device. Probably have to to rely on certain pins being inputs, certain pins being outputs. Maybe that's not so bad if you know something about the device. I don't know. Sometimes it's just going to apply better than others. Um, but you could maybe have a piece of hardware exercise all those pins again in different uh, combinations and try them all. It's a lot of combinations. Get more than a few pins in, it becomes a huge number. And especially when you talk about what happens in sequence, if you if you set this value. And then 10 milliseconds later, you set it a different way. You know, that's a different question than if you just set it and leave it. So brute force is going to be difficult to get a lot of analysis, a lot of correct analysis with. Possible, might be good enough in some cases. If you want to be sure, probably not good enough. So you want to look at some sort of deep analysis pathway. If you had them, you could actually study original schematics or whatever other design docs are out there. And so it becomes a historical, even archeological kind of exercise to put on your, your brown fedora and get your whip and your pistol. And if you can find them, that might be good enough. Although the problem is that they, just because they were the originals even, even if you definitely for sure had the original documents, there's a term is as as designed and as implemented. <laughs> Sometimes they're not the same. So that may be good enough for your reverse engineering if they're correct. And if, if they're not correct, uh, then it won't be good enough. So what do you do at this point? Well, in many cases, depending on what you're reverse engineering, you actually go off and create your own reality-based design documents. So you actually go and document you know, as built, so to speak which works a lot better on a, say a, a PCB than it does necessarily on the insides of, a, of an ASIC because they put the, the, the product of your design or someone's design on silicon and then wrapped it in, in a ceramic or plastic and you can't see it. And even if you could easily see it, there's really tiny. So <laughs> you'd have to take pictures of a microscope or whatever. So, yeah, you have to acquire surviving artifact of some sort. Maybe this is a big deal. Maybe it's not. I'd say the jury's a little bit split on the um, the value of an artifact gimme chip. Some people seem confident that they were going to have a perfect replacement gimme X or whatever coming along. I at least think to myself, well, whatever that is, it's not the same. So <laughs> I have a little more... Um, personal uh, respect, shall we say, for the artifacts. But anyway, that's a different topic. Uh, so you have to acquire the artifact. And so if, you, if it's a chip like the Gimme, you're going to have to remove the actual die from its packaging. And so this is a destructive process, right? So you can't just crack it open. Theoretically, you could, in some cases, hit it with a properly placed chisel. <laughs> Um, although just trying to get just the right amount of um, ceramic off that way is a little tricky. I've seen it done, but overall, potentially it's destructive. If nothing else, you're 
you're going to end up destroying the chip in terms of having something that works to keep a Coco 3 alive. So you're treading in dangerous territory there, but, um, you know, <laughs> the use is on, I guess. So alternatives there, you might actually, um, sometimes they use a drop of acid to actually burn away the, the plastic or ceramic or whatever. There's a little bit of a trick there. It's like you need just the right concentration and leave it for just the right amount of time so it only burns through ceramic. And you got to get all the ceramic off without burning through the other layers of the chip. Certainly possible, but it's tricky. Once you've got that, so then you apply some sort of high-resolution photography because you know, you're talking about little micrometers. Nowadays, nanometers or less uh, devices. It's like if you were taking pictures of Iraq for the Gulf War. You know, you, <laughs> you get pictures of the enemy sites. And then somebody's got to look and say, well, that's a missile emplacement and that's, you know, a swimming pool or something like that. So you have to do the equivalent. You're looking at these, what amount to plots of, you know, are the, are the renderings. Those renderings, they're not marked in terms of this is a transistor, this is a capacitor, this is a capacitor with certain characteristics or a transistor with certain characteristics. They don't have any markings like that. They have shapes. In many cases, other layers are around. You're not going to see every aspect of the shapes. You won't even necessarily know how big some of the shift features are. In many cases, that'll be, you'll, you have something that's good enough. You can tell that that is a transistor. You might or might not be able to tell, you know, if you need to know, um, you know, for example, the, the gain of, of a transistor uh, or um, what levels of currents are flowing, that sort of stuff. Maybe you need that, maybe you don't, but it's pretty tough. You need to understand some, some physics, at least an electrical engineering level of physics. You'll get some of the data by looking at things. Some of it might be difficult to dig out just by looking. Maybe you luck out, maybe you don't. Maybe you make some good guesses, but then they're just guesses, right? You're talking about thousands, hundreds of thousands, <laughs> maybe even millions of transistors. Not a small job, so especially if you want truth and accuracy, it can be very, very difficult to come through with all that. Such analysis, though, it is possible, and it's even been done by hobbyists for certain other chips. Um, I think at least one version of the 6502 has been that way. Some other custom chips from the 8-bit era, I think, have been done. Um, so it's possible, um, and hopefully it'll be good enough to be useful. But uh, let's see. Nevertheless, there are problems. It is destructive to remove the, the, the dye from the package. So theoretically, you know, that might uh, damage the device itself and either physical, like put a crack it in half kind of damage or acid could eat away a little too deeply in certain places or not deeply enough in others. It's possible. But even if you get everything off and you can look straight down through it's, uh, it's like trying to figure out what's buried under the underpass from the satellite. <laughs> and so, you know, you can't see through the bridge going over the river. So you don't know if anybody's on the on the side of the river or not under the bridge. So you're going to have layers that's, that can obscure or obfuscate features. Sometimes you have layers come together and be weird shapes or, or whatever, and it's hard to tell exactly what the purpose was. And uh, you have to kind of... They have to guess or, or whatever. So it's prone to error is what I'm getting at. There are details that are important. 
Um, and you ask any human to, to analyze these things. Now, most likely the Gimme chip was a, a semi-custom design of some sort. So hopefully um, once you get into analyzing things, you'll start to recognize certain features as library cells one way or another, either they're OR gates from the library, NOR gates, NAND gates from the library, or maybe bigger cells of some sort. But you'll be able to identify them and say, you know, that's what this does, whatever. And um, like you say, there'll be things like register files or whatever where you'll have a lot of the same design replicated. You'll be able to figure out what those do. Let's hope. So, I mean, first of all, decapping an ATIC, uh, clearly it is an exciting project, and there are interesting possibilities. I mean, we could do it. It's possible to find this hidden 256 code or something like it. Or maybe at least be able to put that to bed. Whether or not we get enough, some people seem to think we're going to be able to refine FPGA implementations of the GIMI based on DCAP and the ASIC. I don't really see the connection there. Um, other than, you know, like if we do somehow uncover a big new feature or whatever, we could document that. Otherwise, it's mostly going to be observing if things work or not and refining the um, the current VHDL or Verilog description, I don't really see decap in the chip as having a lot of effect on that sort of thing. We'll see. Proper analysis of a decapped ASIC requires a lot of skill and patience. Remember, we're talking about thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of, of transistors. And you're going to need analog electrical engineering analysis of some features. And then, and they're implemented at a really tiny level, probably right on top of other similar features or right beside them or whatever. Confusing and tedious. Maybe you get that kind of implementation information. Maybe you figure it out. Maybe you don't. We'll see. Here's a big one that should be considered. There could be accidental damage that occurred with the decapping. You know, things that weren't intended, maybe not even observed that there was damage bits of a layer um, that disappeared when it shouldn't have or that did or that uh, dug a little deeper than it should have or or maybe didn't disappear like it should have. Um, so those kind of things that might obscure or even confuse the analysis, it might even be hard to detect some of them. So you might not even know that you're looking at a damaged part. Even if you do do a perfect uh, analysis, you get everything. You look at all the transistors, resolve them out to gate level. The results you're gonna you're fundamentally reassembling digital logic gates um, from individual transistors, and this is similar, maybe even more complex than trying to reassemble C++ code looking at a memory dump from the binary machine code. Huh. And uh, if you did have a memory dump of binary machine code, you'd at least be able to try reassembling the code to see if you got the original uh, binary. Whereas in this case, you're not likely to be able to do that in any meaningful way. So, I don't know. I don't mean to throw cold water on a project. Maybe a little bit of cold water on a few people who kind of lost their minds <laughs> um, getting excited about things. Not that you shouldn't get excited, just uh, you need to keep some perspective just so you don't uh, burn out your, your hobby uh, <laughs> mojo. I think that's about it. I hope you've enjoyed this. If you think I've screwed up any of this information, told somebody something, told you something wrong, 
or if I just didn't have some information that you do have, love to hear about it. If you have um, any other input or or something that I missed, definitely want to hear about that. So that's feedback, F-E-D-B-A-C-K, at cogocrew.org, C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W.org. Otherwise, keep on cogoing, cogo forever. <laughs> Hope everyone's had a, a, a lovely end of the year holiday season. Since 1994, Cloud9 has been making cool stuff for your color computer. Like the Cloud9 Mini Flash, a flash cartridge for your color computer or Dragon. The Mini Flash gives you a total of four 16K banks of flash memory. You can easily flash ROM images into any of the four 16K banks. Store your favorite DOS ROMs and game packs on the Mini Flash. And the Mini Flash is perfect for prototyping your own ROMs without the need for an EEPROM burner. The Mini Flash comes with flash programming software and test utilities. It's preloaded with HDB DOS for DriveWire and two games from Retro Tinker, Coco Dooku and Follow Coco, so you can use the Mini Flash immediately. The Cloud9 Mini Flash works on all color computer and Dragon models and is housed in a high-quality injection molded cartridge case. The Mini Flash, only from Cloud9. Cool stuff for your color computer. Visit cloud9tech.com for details. Welcome back to Neil's Corner on episode 79 of the Coco Crew Podcast. First off, I'd like to say happy holidays and season greetings to all of you Coco fans out there. I can't believe this is the last episode of the year. And with that, I've saved the best for last to bring this year to a close. This month, I'll be reviewing a game I've been working on producing for a while now. It is called Blockdown, encoded by the legendary Kieran Anscombe the same guy who has been working on the incredible XROAR emulator for all of us to enjoy. As all of you know, I enjoy producing Coco game cartridges for fellow coders. But with this game, I'm even more excited because it uses John Linville's Game Master cartridge, or GMC for short. This allows games to have real proper chip tunes, as the Coco never had a real dedicated sound chip. For those curious, the GMC sports a TI-76489 sound chip, the same chip used in Sega Master System, early Tandy 1000s, IBM PC Jr., along with other platforms, I'm sure. Alright, on to the game. Blockdown is a traditional falling blocks puzzle game and supports one or two players, which makes it even more suiting to use a GMC. You can't play the classic block game without glorious chiptune music playing in the background. The object of the game is very simple. Pieces of four blocks in various shapes fall down from the top of the screen. Your job is to rotate and fit them together, forming solid lines. When you form a solid line, it'll disappear and give you room to create more lines. The game is over when you run out of space to form a line. As you create lines, you'll receive points. You get extra points for creating multiple lines at once. Blockdown also has a cool feature where you can bank pieces and use them for later, such as the straight piece. Those are always handy to form lines. Blockdown will also show you a preview of up to the next six pieces coming, so you can try to plan ahead. In two-player mode, clearing more than one line at a time will send your opponent garbage and slowly filling up their play area. Blockdown was written in 100% machine language. It requires a Tandy color computer or a Dragon with at least 16K of memory. It will detect if you're using a PAL or NTSC machine and adjust certain parameters accordingly. Because the Coco 3 does not fully support the semi-graphics video mode used in this game, some text will not be readable, but the game will remain playable. After you insert the game cartridge and it boots up, you'll see that there are different options to choose from, such as composite or RGB video modes. You can also change the difficulty and speed. 
Player controls are only by the keyboard, so no joystick is required for this game. By the time you are listening to this podcast, I will have the first batch of Blockdown game cartridges produced and ready for sale. They come complete in translucent cartridges, game label, manual, and box, just like you'd be buying a game cartridge from Radio Shack back in the day. If you'd like to purchase a copy and don't see my listing on the social media pages and Coco List, feel free to reach out to me by dropping an email to neil at cococrew.org. Well, there you have it. Another brand new game for your Coco with nice graphics and real chiptune music. Perfect time to enjoy over the holidays. Until next year, happy Coco Gaming and Retro Forever. Christmas, you filthy animal. And a happy new year. Well, we have reached the end of episode 79 on the Coco Crew podcast. As usual, I'd like to thank our host, John Linville, for procuring all the news articles and providing us with informative tech segments. Mike Rowan, for painstakingly editing the podcast and creating those fun commercials you hear. Boise Pete, our Coco historian. He remembers it, so you don't have to. Last but not least, We'd like to thank all of you who listen and support us each month. We appreciate your feedback. From all of us here at the Coco Crew Podcast, we hope you have a wonderful holiday season and get lots of Coco time in. See you all next year. Until then, happy Cocoing and retro forever. It's a blast from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco. like there's no tomorrow. What is this crazy rock and roll music anyway? It's a blast from the past. Dance, dance, dance.
Go, go.